Do you want to know why networking and leadership are so important skills to be successful in business and why everybody, including employees, must learn those skills? Then this episode is for you. No one has ever managed men into battle. So feel free to pause and think about that for a few minutes but it will start to really get to the essence of what leadership is. Mark is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Educated at MIT, Mark has spent his career launching and fixing new ventures at startups, Fortune 500s, and academia. He's developed new software languages, online marketplaces, new authentication systems, and tracked criminals and terrorists on the dark web. Mark helped create the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he's taught for 20 years. Mark also serves on the boards of nonprofits Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corals. Topics we cover in episode 74. Leadership, entrepreneurship, what is better? Alpha leadership or better leadership? What makes exceptional leaders like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, or Steve Jobs, and much, much more. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Life Science Gets Together podcast, Beginner's Mind. And today we talk about a very important topic, especially for Europeans. We talk about entrepreneurship, networking, and how to do business with the United States. And I'm very happy today to have as a guest, a writer from the United States. He wrote the book, The Career Toolkit, if I remember it right. And welcome to the show, Mark Hirschberg. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here today. Mark, it's good to see you. Let me ask you a first question. How is life these days on the East Coast in the United States? Well, it depends where on the East Coast you are, because <laughs> America, we're really a whole bunch of different cultures put together. And so you have cities like New York where Omicron is spiking and we're being fairly cautious. And then you have other places in the U.S. where it's also spiking, but people are just saying, who cares? And it's fake and this is all made up and they're going on with life as normal until they wind up in the hospital. Yeah, it's um, interesting times, interesting times. Uh, I'm happy to hear that Omicron is not as severe as the previous variant. So maybe we see... Um, the pandemic coming to an end. It would be great to go to the United States again. I think travel currently is still difficult when it wants to travel to the United States from Europe. How is it inside the United States for travelers? There's no real restrictions. Mm -hmm. You can get on a plane. You don't have to quarantine. No testing requirements. The only requirements are that you wear a mask, which of course is causing some violence within the U.S. on planes. The number of violent incidents on planes has increased significantly uh, because a number of people just object to wearing a mask. Oh, that's uh, that's a sad thing to hear. I think for uh, doesn't uh, need to, to, to have some trouble because of the mask wearing. Uh, I guess you have uh, only the cloth mask, I guess, in the United States. Is that true? It's whatever mask you want, the cloth mask, the medical mask, the N95, the KN95, all different types. They just require that you wear something mm -hmm. and you can get by with, with just a little. But 
you know, Americans, we have within us, for better and worse, a streak of independence. Mm. And for some people, that comes out in, I'm an American, damn it, I don't have to wear a mask. And this individuality overtakes the sense of collectivism. And unfortunately, Americans also have a tendency towards violence. Let's stay with the positive traits of the American culture. Um, I'm European and I work out of Europe. And when I think about entrepreneurship, I always uh, look towards the great pond to the United States, which in my opinion uh, is one of the best places for entrepreneurs in the world, especially on the East Coast. We have the, for life science entrepreneurs, we have the ecosystem around Boston. And on the West Coast, uh, there is San Francisco Bay Area, I think, uh, universities that are very well known and famous like Stanford for producing great entrepreneurs at scale. And lately I learned that in Florida, in Miami, it seems to become the, um, the motherland of the Bitcoin industry and blockchain industry. Every time when you open up something on YouTube, they talk about Florida, Miami, and the great place for Bitcoiners. And also I learned that in Texas, a lot is going on. My perception of the United States was... Um, They know everything about entrepreneurship and they can't learn anything more. And then I came across your book, The Career Toolkit, and you addressed exactly these points. What was the reason for you to write this book? I've been teaching a class at MIT for the past 20 years. It's referred to as MIT's Career Success Accelerator. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we found is that companies had said, this is 20 years ago, they said, there are skills we want to see in employees leadership, communication, team building, networking, negotiating, but we can't find these skills, not just in the people we hire from your school, in anyone we hire. And these skills help people, not just senior executives. They help everyone within a corporation. They also help entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, but these skills are not taught in school. We just kind of assume people are going to figure them out. It's almost like saying to your kid, well, you're 16 now, Excuse me. You're 16 now. You've seen me drive a car, right? So here you go. Here are the keys. You go drive the car because you've watched. That's all you need to do. But that's what we do when we say, well, you've seen other people lead or other people build relationships and networking. So just follow along and do it. And that, of course, is not sufficient. So we need to be more formal in how we train people up. And that's what we started at MIT. I wanted to take what we do and expand it and help a larger set of people. That's very interesting to hear for Europeans uh, that even you in America see there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of skills necessary that are not taught in universities and neither in schools. Uh, can you tell me the five most important skills that you think people need to train more? There's I can't say these five versus those. Like do the ten that yeah. we've seen in the surveys creating and having a career plan and companies want this for their employees skills like working effectively, managing your manager, understanding the corporate culture in which you work hiring. Most of us, we know how to be an interviewee. We don't know how to interview other people. We get no training there. Leadership, the people side of management, the process side of management. So the mechanical project management, mm -hmm. communication, networking, negotiating and ethics. And those are the 10 we've seen time and again surveys at MIT and at other universities. That's uh, 
that's an interesting and unexpected take for me because I mean it's quite clear in Europe that we need to brush up these skills tremendously. At any time when I talk with Americans, I got the feeling that they are very proficient. But you said you started your book uh, or your research for the book 20 years ago. Uh, is there a reason why you think that these topics are not covered sufficiently at the universities and in other books already? Well, at the university level, it's because universities are run by professors. Mm-hmm. And they're wonderful people. They're very smart, but they are very focused in a narrow area. If you think about a professor, let's say, of biology, this mm-hmm. professor has gone very deep, has his or her Ph.D. And what happens when you show up as undergrad and say, I want to study biology? A professor says, well, take these introductory classes and some intermediate classes and some advanced classes. And if you do all this We, the experts in the field, have decided you are worthy of getting a piece of paper saying you have a bachelor's in biology. All that piece of paper is saying is you have a certain level of knowledge of biology. It's not saying you're good at biology. It's not saying you're a good employee. It just says you've acquired a certain level of knowledge. That is not sufficient for being an effective worker. That might have been okay 50, 100 years ago, where you focused in one little area, but in today's workforce, you need a broader set of skills. And academia has not caught up to that need because professors focus on their area. And academia also moves slowly, very slowly, as you know. So I think we'll start to see the change in 20 or 30 years, but we are behind the curve on that. In terms of books, there are plenty. I'm not going to say, I've written things no one has ever talked about before. You can find a lot of these topics covered elsewhere. I think I address them in something of a new way. I do bring in a few new ideas, but that doesn't mean just because the books are out, it doesn't mean it's reaching everyone and that folks are actually getting the information and acting on it. And I hope that my approach with the book and the companion app will reach more people and engage them to develop these skills. Now, definitely. I think every writer has uh, a unique perspective on a topic and it's always a great thing to read more books on a similar topic to get uh, a broad picture of what's going on and what are the important parts. Um, you mentioned in your book, if I remember it right, but please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, leadership. Leadership is one of the skills people should learn. And um I must admit, I'm an internet junkie um, and I'm watching a lot of uh, YouTube videos on this term of leadership and living and growing up in Europe, uh, Austria and Germany. I think the management style that evolved out of the German industry, especially or car industry, was very process oriented and um, industrialization motivated people to follow um certain structures, I would call it that way, and stick to the rules. Uh, What's your definition of leadership? There are a lot of them out there. But if you press me for really what is the definition of leadership, a leader is someone who has followers. And that seems really basic. It seems almost tautological. But that is really the most important thing. If I command a bunch of people, if I'm in charge, I do what I say or else, what we refer to as positional leadership, are you really leading? You're directing. You might be in charge. You're certainly managing, but that's not leading. And when we think about some of the most influential leaders, I think about people like Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi. They had zero positional authority. 
They could not just command people and say, do this. They led by putting forth an idea and having people buy into it and follow them in pursuit of this goal. And that is true leadership. And even within companies, you might have the authoritative leadership, the ones that come from their title, but the best leaders also use influential leadership, whether they have the title or not. It's very interesting that you use the term influential leadership. I think um, on the internet, there are many people with uh, big followings that uh, push forward certain topics and are quite successful, amazingly, to... Um, I mean, I always remember TikTok, for example, last year during the pandemic, uh, there was uh, Charlie Damario was her name, uh, who did dancing videos and motivated people uh, to be more active and started also to talk a little bit more on her channels. And I think she amassed in no time 60 million uh, followers that commented, that engaged with her, engaged with the content, and she built a nice business around it. And or Gary Vaynerchuk, for example, when we talk about... Uh, Leadership and motivating people is also talking a lot about these topics. What I'm curious to learn more about is what kind of personalities uh, can be a leader that is not, let's say, uh, confused with a manager. What skills should people learn? Is it is it really a, uh, are these learnable skills or are these natural born leaders? What's your opinion on that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Good question. Let me I want to back up a second where we talked about people who have followers on, on the internet. Just because you have followers on the internet, you're not necessarily a leader. So let's start with, let's say Justin Bieber. Lots of people follow him. Good music, very popular, but he's not leading them. Mm -hmm. And even some of the people you mentioned, if they say, oh, hey, everyone, get up and do some exercise. They're influencing those people like, oh, okay, hey, I guess I'll do some exercise today. Otherwise, I gotta sit on my couch. But they're not necessarily leading mm -hmm. because we're not working together for a common goal. And so the, we use the term followers, but I would not define followers the way the internet defines it as I am following you. That's not necessarily what it means to be a follower. Now, it might be I am following you because you're proposing some change in policy. You're proposing we fight global warming and I'm following you and I'm with you and I want to work and do things and you help me figure out what to do. Okay, that is following in the leadership sense. Now, to the question you asked about leaders being born or being grown, the nature versus nurture, there's some of each. You can be a natural leader. There are some people like that. You can also be a natural athlete or naturally good at languages or math or anything else. We've seen this, but that doesn't mean if you're not, you can't learn it. And in fact, what we see, for example, with sports, there are some natural athletes who say, oh, I'm just good at this. I don't need to practice. I just show up and do it. 
They're the ones who say, well, I'm not naturally that good. I have to train. I have to push myself. And those people tend to do better in the long run. They're the ones who are constantly growing and learning and not resting on their laurels. So the same thing applies to leadership. You might be a natural leader and congratulations, that's great. But if you are not, don't think you can't. You can learn this and by working at, you can become far better than someone who is just naturally good at and doesn't put any work into it. So your opinion is it's a learnable and teachable skill? A hundred percent. Every skill in the book, leadership, communicating, networking, negotiating, all of these are learnable skills. In fact, a friend of mine wrote a book on something even you might think more far-fetched to be learnable. My friend Olivia Fox Caban wrote the book, The Charisma Myth. Mm -hmm. Charisma is a learnable skill. You can learn to be more charismatic. As just understanding in all cases, what exactly is this skill? What are the components that make it up? And then working on that. Just like if you wanted to be a better, let's say a better basketball player, what do you do? You say, well, there's lots of different ways to be a good basketball player. You might be good at shooting. You might be good at passing. You might be good at rebounding. It's all different skills. Work on each of them. You might be the world's best rebounder, someone else a better shooter, but you're all good and you work on all the skills. So different leaders, they we work on the same skill set. Some of us are stronger in some of the components, others in different components. But by building up those individual components, you become stronger at leadership. That's good news and also a little bit of bad news because there are no excuses anymore. So nobody can say... <laughs> I'm not a born leader. Sorry for that. So I can't achieve anything in that uh, that uh, that area. Uh, what you said is that also all these ten skills that you point out in your book are learnable and teachable, and people just need to sit down and do their homework and can become better in leadership. Um, leadership, I think, is an important thing, especially today when in the startup world, uh, so many people want to start a story. And as you said, uh, putting a website on or a Facebook profile and MS uh, 10,000 followers on Facebook doesn't automatically mean it's leadership in the sense of business. Um, the one component you mentioned was these people need to work together to be a business leader, to define the term business leadership. Um, and we also have the term management in companies. What's the difference between management and leadership? This is a very common question. It can be subtle. Now, before I answer, I want to note in my book, I look separately at leadership and at the people part of management and the process part. But in the end, the way I conclude that section is to say good leaders manage, good managers lead. On a day-to-day -day basis, it is blurred together. You don't say, okay, I'm going to lead for the next five minutes. Now I'm going to switch and manage for the next five minutes. They really do go together in how we act. But I broke them down separately. This is perhaps my physics background. I look at the individual component vectors, right? Let's look at them individually, and then we compose them into how we act. But when it comes to understanding the difference, really the The way I understand it best is a quote that doesn't directly define it. But when you think about this quote, it's going to help you understand and feel free. I'm going to say the quote, feel free to pause this if you're listening and take a few minutes to reflect on it because it takes a little time to sink in. The difference between leadership and management, 
no one has ever managed men into battle. So feel free to pause and think about that for a few minutes, but it will start to really get to the essence of what leadership is. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Just thinking about it, uh, how a process would look like. So pick up your uh, sword, <laughs> make one step forward. It's definitely, I mean, uh, I think in the movie Braveheart, it's uh, very nicely exemplified how to motivate people to go to the extremes and to move forward. Uh, there's possibly a lot to learn about leadership in the military sector because they need to do it on a daily basis. And we can also transform it uh, to the business world. When I look on the business world today, I mean, leadership, for example, on the battlefield, there is always this... Uh, this alpha male, I think this, this strong man who is standing in front of his army and uh, making the first step forward and hopefully all the others follow and are motivated. Um, when I look on society today, uh, especially on the internet and YouTube, when these uh, alpha and beta male concepts are discussed, I lately heard the, uh, the theory, I think it was from Jordan Peterson, where he said uh, the alpha male... Um, myth failed so the better males won already and uh, we are in a time where it's better to motivate people and to be more the nice guy than the strong guy who pushes uh, people around can you make a little bit uh, uh, can you shine more light on this terminology alpha male and the myth of the alpha male yeah and i have a section in my chapter on leadership that addresses mm -hmm. exactly this that i think we do have that myth of you have to be an alpha male to lead we have that concept that you illustrated so well of the guy who stands up front and says charge and is leading the charge. Or if we think about movies and TV and you go back to mid-century, the 1950 movies, it's a leading man. And what does that leading man look like? He's tall and broad shouldered and he's very clear in his statements and he shouts when he needs to. He has no doubt, no uncertainty doesn't show emotion. And this is our image. This is what we grew up thinking. This is who we want as leaders, whether it's the gunfighter in the Westerns or whether it's the leading man who stops a bad guy, gets the girl, or just is commanding stage presence. But that is not necessarily what a good leader is. In fact, as, uh, as you noted, it is about engaging people it's having people following you. And we don't respond well to people who just yell at us these days. That may have worked. That may have been a mindset that was okay 70, 80 years ago. But just saying, damn it, I'm in charge, doesn't work on people these days. And so we need to use different techniques. Unfortunately, we tend to, because of this image we have of that leader on the battlefield or in the movies, we tend to conflate the two. And we hear someone who is commanding with his voice. And I keep saying he because it's almost always a guy when he shouts, when he doesn't show emotion, when he's direct, when he shoots down anyone who dares challenge his authority. We confuse that with leadership. And we see that in the political world as well as the business world. But in fact, the best leaders are ones who listen, who engage, who might say, I need to think about that. Let me get back to you. And those are the best leaders of today. And it has nothing to do with these traits of behavior because those behavioral traits aren't necessarily leadership traits. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. That's an interesting theory. Um, The pictures you painted with the Western, the strong guy standing in front of everybody and sometimes also being a little bit of, let's say, not so much a nice guy, uh, being more the, I don't want to use the term and I don't know, but it's a word with A and ends with a whole uh, to move forward. And this is also the perception I get sometimes from uh, American businessmen that they're very tough and very straightforward and uh, very dictating. And now the things are shifting. Uh, do you think that uh, probably different situations in business uh, demand different types of leadership? A hundred percent. And we talk about different types of leaders from transformational leaders and change leaders to growth leaders. You can imagine, for example, when you walk into a situation where I'm brought into a company There's a difference between, hey, we're doing great. We just doubled in size each of the last two years and we're continuing to grow. Fantastic. Everyone's happy. Everyone's motivated. And now it's just let's keep steering the ship and making sure we can keep going fast without falling off the rails. That's different than we just had to lay off 30 percent of our staff three months ago. Revenues down. Products are shrinking. Everyone's demoralized. What do we do? I can't go, okay, everyone, hey, good job. Let's keep it up, right? Okay, we have to engage the team. Let's talk about what's going on here. Let's re-motivate people, re-engage people, and figure out a path forward. And that's even different than, hey, everything's going well. Maybe we have been growing every year for the last two years. But now, by the way, I know it looks great and you think everything's going well, but I can see we're running out of track and we need to switch, And so guess what, everyone? We've got to steer this way. I said, no, 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 this is good. This is good. Why would we switch? And you have to convince people, this is why we need to change. It's hard. It's costly. I know in the short term, it seems like unnecessary work, but here's why. And that's a different type of motivation. So really, it is circumstantial based on the circumstances, based on where the company is, where it's going, the people, the relationships, the overall mood of the company, it's going to call for different leadership styles. And of course, how the company, how they respond to leadership. If you are in, for example, a company that has a lot of ex-military people, maybe a defense contractor, these are people who spent lots of time in the military. They're used to hierarchy and structure. And they're used to when the person in charge says, guess what? We're going to switch our direction. They say, okay, sir. They might talk about it a little, but they're used to, you follow the chain of command. If the person above you says, do this, they see something you don't. That's very different than a startup, which is perhaps very used to, hey, everyone, I'm the CEO. I don't just tell you what to do. We together make the decisions. 
And now if I come in and say, we have to go in a different direction, they're saying, no, no, we have to decide to do it. I can't just tell them to do it and convince them. I have to have them feel they made the decision. So it also has to do with the nature of how people respond to leadership within that organization. That's a good point to uh, compare big corporations and startups in terms of leadership. I worked in both. And big corporations need big structures and have big structures to achieve their business goals. For example, in the pharma industry, it's quite simple. Bring products to the patients in time. So whenever a patient needs a product, the organization must deliver. It would be a pity when they sit down and say, okay, let's sit together and make the decision together and let the patient wait. Uh, it would not be a good thing in most cases. So there is a demand of certain structures and it's uh, also demands certain types of leadership. When I look in the startup world, um, usually big ideas, no money, and people who want to accomplish a goal. And in my opinion, uh, it needs right from the start people who are self-motivated and know what they are doing. There's almost no time to train new employees. So this is also from from my from my perception the reason why the decision making is uh, is, in, is in a way it is because most of the people are proficient already and know what they're doing. What I'm surprised, I mean, usually in the big corporations I learned when you have a certain situation in the company, uh, you hire a leader to lead the corporation for the next four years to achieve certain goals. And then you have a change of leadership. It's this four to five year terms of managers. And also in the startup world, I mean, some people can start things up, then some people are good in scaling things and other people are good in structuring things and uh have more the process orientation. And these are also types of personalities. What I wonder are these, these rare entrepreneurs, in my opinion, like, for example, Bill Gates started Microsoft and ran Microsoft for more decades. Steve Jobs, also a startup entrepreneur and led Apple then also when Apple was already a big corporation. Elon Musk is a similar personality. Did you find uh, answers? Uh, what kind of personalities are these? What is so special in, in them that they can adapt to almost every situation? It's typically a mindset of learning. Mm -hmm. It's people who say, I know there's always more for me to do. The ones who fail, particularly at startups, and I see this not just at the CEO level, but every level, is they say, well, we're doing well. We did get that double. We went from getting $10,000 a month to $100,000 a month. So it's working. We see there's revenue. We see things are increasing. KPIs are good. This is working. I'm just going to do more of the same. But as you note, that early stage of ideation and getting product market fit is different than the stage of rapid growth, which is different than the stage of maturation and really putting processes in place. And so recognizing that what worked yesterday doesn't necessarily work tomorrow is I think really important. And the leaders who are successful always say, what do I have to learn for tomorrow? As opposed to, why do I need to learn anything? Obviously I'm successful. The last X days have been great. Why would tomorrow be different? There is no change tomorrow. We do it just the same like every day. Unfortunately, I think with the pandemic in March 2020, everybody realized that the world can change in a minute. And it's not the same like it was before. So being adaptive is definitely helpful. I was just smiling as you said, the CEO. Uh, and I thought, is leadership 
only something that the CEO should be capable of, or is it basically a skill that also every employee should train in? Every employee should learn to be a leader. And this is what companies want. Now, we sometimes think, well, the CEO leads and maybe it's the executive team. Those people certainly take a official leadership position. They have leadership responsibility that if they don't lead, the company's going to have problems. But it doesn't mean they want other people to just follow. They want other people to lead. And what leadership means in this case, imagine you are a very junior employee. You have no formal authority. You're sitting with your team. Your team's debating, what should we do? What direction should we go in? And you say, hey, everyone, I have an idea. Why don't we do the following? And I imagine we can go in this direction. We partner with this company and we do all this. And here's why it makes sense. And you get buy-in from the whole team. You just led. Might have been just for a few minutes, but you put forth an idea. You convinced a bunch of people to follow you in that idea. That's leadership. Now, you might still have the manager of that department execute on the plan, mm -hmm. still do the project management for the next six months to make it happen, but you led the team in that direction. That's what companies want to see. They don't want people to just say, you tell me what to do, sir, and we'll figure out how to do it. They want you to stand up and take that initiative and throw out those ideas. That's, that's a great point. So leadership basically boils down to uh, having an idea, doing your homework, uh, finding out why this idea is the right one to push forward in the organization people work in, then sit down with colleagues and with your boss and convince them uh, in a in a way that they want to follow the idea and discuss the idea with them so that they naturally buy in and then just let things evolve and develop and not having the necessity to say, yeah, here I am, it was my idea, it was my idea only. Um, so it's basically something that everybody should be capable of in a, in a company. And I think it was, you mentioned Nelson Mandela a couple of minutes ago. I think it was Nelson Mandela who said, uh, if you want to lead from the front, you must first learn to lead from behind. Is this also something that uh, you would uh, agree on? A hundred percent. Because again, leadership isn't about your position and authority being in front. I'm the person with this title and you have to listen to me. Good leaders know how to be influential and lead from behind and lead when they don't have any formal authority. And sometimes when I look at startups, almost no money. So this is also something uh, where people not only inside the organization must be led or convinced that the idea is great. Also from outside, like investors. And this brings me to the next point in the conversation. It's a little bit uh, talking about networking, especially in the world of uh, startup. Um When I think about startups, I have this picture in mind of um, of uh, two technicians sitting in a garage, working on an idea, and one day uh, they find out that their their idea is the best idea in the world that will change the world naturally and go out on the market and find an investor in no time because the idea is great who invests in the company automatically 10 million and from there everything runs smoothly forward until the company reaches three trillion on the stock market like ever did with no interference and no problems on the way um why in your opinion when we have this picture of apple for example where steve jobs when in the 70s started the company and then 
when we look back, now it's three trillion story. Why is it necessary to network? What is the role of networking in putting such a success story forward? First, I want to just talk about that that vision you have of going from the garage to getting the money to growing. And that's great. And that happens almost never. We see it once in a while. We do hear stories like Apple. You didn't hear the story of that other company where you had these two technicians and they spent two years in the garage and they couldn't find an investor and it went nowhere. You don't hear the story of the company that got some money and started going and then they collapsed. We don't write stories about the failures. So we have this these rose-colored glasses. We have this sample bias of the of the winners. I'm bringing the term for the the winner bias. We only look, survivorship bias. We only look at the ones who survived, who made it, and we miss out on all the other stories. And that's really critically important to understand. I'd also suggest anyone who's thinking, "What's it like to be in a startup?" One of my favorite TV shows was the HBO series Silicon Valley. <laughs> And it's done as a comedy. It really doesn't feel that far off from what we went through. If you watch the TV show, one day they say, oh, we just closed this major investor. Everything's great. And next day it turns out there's a problem. And then, oh, we've got this great partnership. But, oh, there's a poison pill with the partnership. And there's just such incredible volatility. And you think, okay, right, they're dramatizing it. Maybe in terms of time frame, where it literally happens one day after the next, but we really do have that type of drama. I was in a company, and right before launch, one of our competitors put out a press release, and I showed up Monday morning, and the CEO said, have you seen this? I go, oh, that's our feature list. Oh, and that's our feature list the next six months, and they're putting this out, and they're worth $700 million. We raised five. This is a problem. We can't do most of what they're doing today. In six months, maybe we come close to some of it. What do we do? And we had to pivot the whole company. That's what startups are like. There's a lot of chaos and volatility and uncertainty. I happen to find it fun. Now, you mentioned, you asked, what is networking like for startups? In startups, you always need something. And uh, first, let me note, in startups, you often get no's. No, I won't invest in you. No, I won't work for you. No, I won't partner with you. No, I won't buy your product. You're just used to lots and lots and lots of rejection. And that's the life of an entrepreneur. That means you have to constantly find new people to invest, to work for you, to partner with you, to supply you, to buy from you. You have to go out and use your network to get what you don't have. Even things like, I don't have a marketing team and I don't have money to hire someone. Is there someone in my network I can talk to? Hey, can we meet for coffee? Can you just tell me a little about marketing? I can't even hire someone. What can I do? What are some basic things I can do? And you're a marketing expert. You can give me some advice. So I'm doing at least this and not nothing. And so we use our network to gain access to the knowledge and other resources that we don't have. That's um, that's one point that you mentioned uh, that resonated with me. Uh, it was this startup life in the beginning where I get a lot of rejection. And uh, I worked also for a few startups in the life science industry. It's mostly drug development. And my perception always was that Funding works best when I start early to build a network to investors, especially in times when I don't need anything from them to just understand and learn 
um, what is their investment perspective? What are they looking for in companies? What do they want to invest in? Because they also have investors who invest in their funds and they need to follow also their rule book. And it spares me a lot of time when I know those people uh, beforehand um, to narrow down the options when I really need money for a startup. Um, when I look at the startup world, well, sometimes I, uh, I'm approached by entrepreneurs who say, look, I mean, we have uh, two weeks of uh, cash, uh, uh, cash runway, then we're out of cash. Please bring us an investor in two weeks. Uh, what's your opinion uh, on the role of networking in fundraising? What's your recommendation or your advice to startup entrepreneurs? Should they strive for getting to know investors even when they don't need money? Or do you believe it's possible without having a network built to investors to raise funds in four weeks time? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Well, think of it for any type of need. Imagine, for example, you are going to move this weekend and you need to pack up your flat. You need friends to come help you. So what do you do? Do you go out during that week? You meet someone in the pub and say, hey, you know, it's really great meeting you. Listen, you're free Saturday. Why don't you come over to my place? Help me pack up. You think you're going to get a That's lot a of takers? <laughs> who do you ask? It's your friend who you've known since college and say, listen, I need a favor. Can you come over? I know it's inconvenient. We always want to build the relationship before we ask. And when you show up with a need, you go, hi, stranger, I need something. No one likes to be approached that way. Now, for, for investors, obviously, they know you're going to come to them with a need. So I was just talking about networking in general. Build relationships long before you need it. I don't necessarily consider reaching out to investors networking because we all know why we're here. I'm looking to get some money. You're looking to get a good investment. This might be purely transactional, and that's fine. But when you show up and say, I only have two weeks cash, the investor says, well, I've got a lot of leverage right now. I know you're about to die in two weeks. You're going to do anything to prevent that from happening. That's not a good position to be in. Mm. You want to meet them earlier. And here's the secret. VCs, investors, they are the easiest people in the world to meet. It's funny. I hear people say, oh, I want to figure out how to meet a VC. And they seem like these big, important people. Most of their day is running around trying to meet people like you. That's what they want to do because they know there is some tiny startup out there. We know what are the best tech companies to go. Oh, it's Apple. It's Facebook. We know where to find them. We know how they're doing. No one knows who is going to be a billion dollar company three years from now that today is five people. No one has any idea who these people are, where to find them. So they are constantly looking. And if you're an entrepreneur, they want to meet you. 
and they want to meet you because they know I have to meet a thousand people like you because one of you is going to be the next unicorn. And I just have to be there when you say you need funding that I get to look at. So VCs are very easy people to meet. And the best way to meet them and engage with them is to do what you mentioned, meet them. They're happy to meet you and chat with you. Don't say, hey, I want to pitch you. I don't need money for six months, but let me pitch you today. No, no, they don't have time for that. But they'll meet you. They'll chat about your idea. You just send them an email. Maybe you meet for coffee. And then here's what you do. Say, here's where we are today. Here's what we're trying to do in the next quarter, two quarters, four quarters. Just want to keep you in the loop. Go, oh, okay, thanks. They spend five minutes reading your email. That's all they need. A quarter goes by. You say, hey, just want to send you an update. So we had set out those four goals. We achieved these three. We're still working on the fourth. Here's what we have coming up. Yeah, okay, thanks. Another five minutes. And you do this for a couple quarters. Now what happens when you go to raise money? The VC says, okay, here's your plan. You're saying, if we give you money, you're going to do all this stuff. But let me look back. Over the past year, you said you were going to set out and do these 10 things. And I see you did seven of them. That's pretty good. No one expects you to be perfect and everything. It's a startup. <laughs> so you kept saying you do things and you did most of them. And you've had this growth, you have this track record, I've gotten to know you. So when you tell me you're going to do this in the future, I have more confidence that you can do it. I've gotten to know you, I've gotten to see what's going on. And so that's a really great way to meet a VC. So go out and meet them, keep in touch with them. Don't take a lot of their time early on. And certainly they're open to, if you have a question, they will sit down with you and help you because they want a good relationship. They want you to like them, but just send them that little quick update, say once a quarter. They appreciate getting that. It helps them keep on top of you and it builds that track record and builds trust in you. That is great advice. I couldn't agree more. So going out, meeting VCs early on, there are many conferences where it's possible to meet VCs or investors, also business angels, family offices, institutional investors, also investors for IPO rounds. And when you take this approach that you recommended, uh, just meeting them for coffee for five minutes, is, there's no need to pitch the entire story to them. It's just uh, handing over a business card and saying, hello, I'm doing this and keeping them in the loop updated or also asking them the questions you recommended to uh, start building your network. Uh, do you know someone um, who is proficient in, I have a gap in the company? Uh, usually they have someone in their network where they are also happy that they can help other people. They are just humans after all, and also want to build relationships, as you mentioned. And when entrepreneurs do this right, right from the start and invest time and money in building those relationships, then I believe it is really possible to close the deal in probably not two weeks, but uh, two months, because also VCs needs to run through processes. But when they already know the story for a certain period of time and know the personality of the founder and know that the team really delivers and executes and see the take up and see the product market fit, then it can check off the boxes very quickly. Uh, compared to those startups who start building relations when they need money. Because then, as you said, I mean, being desperate for money is almost never a good uh, starting position for a negotiation. Not at all, no. The term of networking or building a community, I think also leadership and community and networking are closely interlinked. Um, the question I have to you is, I mean, uh, building relationships sounds... Um, 
very simplistic, but many people, to be honest, fail uh, in keeping relationships alive over a long time. Uh, just look around in the world, especially with the pandemic, there is a lot of drama on social media and people starting fighting. What's the secret, in your opinion, of building relationships and maintaining relationships over time? It's no different than how you have built and maintained friendships. And really, I think about giving, not taking. It goes back to when you meet someone on the bar, if the first words out of your mouth are, hey, can you help me move this Saturday? <laughs> not a great way to start. Whenever you start with an ask, it's a, it's a bad situation. So start by getting to know someone, take an interest in the other person, what's important to them, build that relationship, build that trust. If you can, offer. Every time I meet someone, what goes through my mind is, how can I help this person? Now, I'm not willing to come over to your house this weekend and help you pack up, but maybe there are smaller things that you can do. For example, one of the things I did when I wrote my book, I read about 1,500 articles on every aspect of publishing I could find. And as I read them, I saved the most useful ones. I had the list. So oh, I'll have to remember this when I get to that stage of it. So I had my list. Now, whenever I meet another author, I say, oh, hey, you mentioned you're writing a book. I've got a list for you. Here's a whole bunch of links. I didn't write any of these articles. Didn't take a lot of effort. I was reading them anyway, just saved them off. Say, here's a bunch of articles I found useful on different aspects of putting together a book. I'll send it over to you. I have just done something for the person. It cost me almost nothing. I built it up once. It takes me two seconds to share it on email. But now I am giving. I start the relationship off by giving to someone else. And when you have that mentality of how can I help? What can I do? Particularly in ways that are low cost for you, but high value to the other person, that helps to put the relationship on a good setting. Yeah, small deed. It must not necessarily be something tangible. It's also saying thank you, being polite, making compliments. Or I think also the internet today is... Uh, a great tool to start building relationships uh, with LinkedIn, for example, sharing articles. When you read something, when somebody reads something that might be interesting for other people, it's a great place to just take these two seconds to share to the community on LinkedIn the article and maybe it helps a person and could be a first initial step to building a relationship rather than jumping right away to the marriage. I mean, the example you brought with the moving is like asking for uh, marrying a girl after the first date. I don't think it works very well also. So it also takes some time to build that. Um, in building relationships in with startups or especially to investors, there is always this uh, introduction. Uh, let's say... Um, or should I say it, um, right, a ritual. It's, it's, it looks like a ritual that is very important to introduce people. What's the power of introduction in networking, in your opinion? Introductions are about a transference of trust. Because when I introduce two people and I say, Barbara, I want to introduce you to Carl. Carl, meet Barbara, and here's why. The fact that I'm doing it, they both know me. They've never met each other. They're strangers. If they met on the street, they'd say, you know, hey, stranger, and get to know the person. But they both know me and trust me. And when I say, for example, hey, Carl, you need to look at Barbara's resume. In fact, her resume, it might not be exactly a fit for what you say you're looking for, but I've known Barbara for years. 
She is incredibly capable. It's not really visible on her resume, but I know she can do exactly what you need. Carl says, well, Mark, I've known you for years. I trust your opinion. So even though her resume, I might reject it initially. If you tell me to look at, I trust you, Mark, she's moving to the front of the line. I'm going to look at her. It doesn't necessarily guarantee her a job, but we've taken that trust, his trust in me, my trust in her, and we connect it all. And so introductions are a good way to leverage that chain of trust to make something happen. But it's not automatically happening. So I think it's also necessary to keep or start then building a relationship. How do you see it? I mean, just the introduction, is that enough? Or is there also then, are there also these other usual steps in building a relationship necessary afterwards? Yeah, as for whether it makes it happen, right? I'm not gonna say, Carl, you have to hire her. Although there have been cases where I remember we had uh, a very junior person in one of my startup mm -hmm. companies one of the founders, his father was a professor of computer science, called us up and said, I have this young student from China. She is my best student. She is fantastic. You guys should hire her. And we quickly did a phone call. We interviewed her. We did a little vetting, but she moved quickly through the process because we trusted his dad. We obviously trusted our co-founder. He trusted his dad. He knows his dad doesn't just say, oh, she's great and he's great and everyone's great. This meant a lot. So she was halfway to being hired just from that. And it's really what that cost is. Hiring someone is a big commitment. On the other hand, oh, you need to meet for coffee with this person. I can make that happen with most people on my network. I can say, you need to do this. I don't command, but suggest it. And it's a done deal. So it depends on the size of the ask. Sometimes it can happen. Sometimes you're just opening the door. Maybe the meeting for coffee is what's going to lead to a job. But of course, you then have to complete. If we're only opening the door, if we're only getting you partway to being hired or whatever it is, you have to complete the rest of it through the process, or you then have to build up that relationship with the person later on. I can just do that initial connection. It's up to the two people to grow whatever relationship they want on their own. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, I mean, these days with the pandemic, also meeting people online, I mean, like we do, we meet uh, via Zoom online. It's possible also to reach out to people from all over the world. Um, but there seems to be some magic when people meet in real life. So this might be a little bit different. Uh, What's your perception on the difference between meeting people online and meeting people in real life? What's the difference between these two settings? I do think in real life seems to have a little more value. And certainly when I think about classic networking, it's far easier to do at a conference. And you and I were in the coffee break and I walk up to you and we start chatting. It's a lot harder on the Zoom networking rooms of okay, here I am looking at six other strangers and what are we supposed to do? That's mm -hmm. definitely more awkward. I suspect it comes from biological evolution of if you're sitting three feet from me or standing three feet from me and we're not killing each other, said, okay, well, you're not from some foreign tribe. You're not stealing my food. So you're here. There's no threat. There's some trust. You're in my group. And I think at some subconscious level, that's what happens. Whereas right now, you're not with me. You're no potential threat to me. So, but I know it's because of Zoom. So I don't have that same sense of, oh, you're, you're with me in the same group. 
But we can certainly, well, I think it's hard to start a relationship on Zoom. We can grow it. And this is actually one of the silver linings from the pandemic. Obviously, it, it's terrible. I wish it didn't happen. But that we're in it, one of the upsides is traditionally, how do we maintain that relationship? Say, hey, let's meet up for coffee. Let's get together and catch up. And we do that in person. Maybe we do it by phone, less likely with someone you only just recently met. If I had said in 2017, if we met at a conference, I said, hey, let's catch up. Let's jump on a video conference. Say, no, no, that's that's really weird. And so the only way we meet up again is if we were in the same city, which, of course, can be hard when you're not. But now, of course, it is normal to say, hey, let's catch up over Zoom. And so what I was telling people during the pandemic, in fact, if we move to hybrid workplaces, this will hold as well. All of us save some time. We saved our morning commutes. You were saving half an hour a day, five days a week. Take one of those mornings, one of those 30 minute blocks and just set aside for it. This is my catching up with someone in my network. And each week you reach out and say, you know, we haven't spoken in a little while. Every morning from 830 to nine, I like to catch up with someone. Just let me know any Tuesday that you're free. Pick a Tuesday from 830 to nine. Let's just catch up. And so it allowed us to engage with people who are non-local within our networks. That's a great point. And yeah, I think the upside of, uh, I mean, you said pandemic is a terrible thing, but in the business world, I think what, what really changed is that Zoom and similar platforms have become generally accepted as a tool to maintain relationships and to do business with them, uh, which was pretty much different uh, two years ago, where it was, as you said, extremely difficult to uh, convince someone uh, to have a meeting over Zoom. But still, I believe also, as you said, that we need those conferences, especially in multinational uh, environments in industries where people can meet in real life. Uh, there were some theories that I discussed last year with some organizers of conferences where they were hoping that uh, digital conferences might be the future and it uh, is enough um, because it's more cost, cost efficient. It's not so much work, in my opinion. But on the other hand, the, the magic in my business always happened when I had a chance to meet people for over a coffee, it's just accidentally bumping into other people and uh, taking the chance then to ask, hey, who are you? What's, what's your business? What are you doing? And this is, in my opinion, not replicable via uh, digital platforms. Do you see the difference? Uh, is there something in the United States probably that I'm not aware of that we can also uh, put this part of building a relationship uh, in the digital world. Uh, I'm not really sure if it's possible. I think it's possible to maintain, but it's harder to grow. I'm not saying it's impossible. In fact, I've had relationships with people where we've run an online community together for years, had never met in person, but we had built up relationships and got to know, to know each other. But I think it, it's harder. You don't grow as fast. To your point about conferences, this is a very important point. I, there's an article I wrote a while back called How to Cre Create Engaging Conferences Your Audience Will Love. If you are thinking of the conference as just sharing knowledge, we're going to learn from this panelist, we're going to hear this speaker, you can do that online. Very rarely do you go to a conference 
and get content that you can't get elsewhere, that you can't get from a podcast like this or an article or some video someone put up on YouTube. That made sense when I started going to conferences in the 90s, we didn't have the World Wide Web as developed as we did. You would get magazines once a month. You had to kind of keep up with what's going on. Maybe there was some local group you were part of. So for example, in my world, back then the lugs, the Linux user groups, and then the jugs, the Java user groups, and you go to this group once a month, but it was slow, it was few and far between. But nowadays, some new technology, I'll bet some tech company wrote a blog post about it. There's some online white paper, there's some video, there's some podcast. So the information gathering piece of conferences continues to go down in value. And so spending all this money to show up to get what I can get for free online, the time and the money, it's not worth it. Or I'll do it online. I'll listen to that video of that speaker. In fact, I can do it later. I can do it on double speed. So it's not a sufficient justification for people to go to events. Event planners need to change their mindset and say, yes, there's content. And that's probably most of what they do. But you need to either have more interactive sessions. Maybe it's a hands-on workshop that's not as easy to do online. It is the interaction with other people. It's fostering those relationships. And it's a bunch of other activities I talk about in the article. And in fact, when you think about what engages people, what are going to make them say, wow, what a great conference. Very rarely is it, oh my God, that was incredible insight. That changed my worldview happens once in a blue moon, but it's not going to happen to most of your audience. But if they come back and think, I met so many wonderful people, I had a good time engaging with others and meeting people and talking and even those fun activities we did, that's going to connect with them emotionally. That's going to make them come back to your event. So event players in the future need to shift from here's the content we put on stage and deliver it to experiential and you can, by the way, supplement that with online stuff as well. One thing that I work with, I speak at a whole bunch of conferences. Mm -hmm. So I say, well, one thing we can do is create this event. I'll be one of your speakers. I'll be your keynote or some workshops. And yes, you have other experiential activities. One thing we can do then is a follow-up afterwards. So I did the keynote. And then we can see what were people's reactions. We might have that side chat. We might have feedback that you got, and then we'll do a series of follow-up things that we can do online. You don't have to fly me out somewhere. And so online is easy for me to do, easy for your audience to get. And now you're engaging with your audience, not just that three days once a year when everyone's there, but the three days once a year, and then maybe two months later for 30 minutes and two months after that. And so you create a repeat connection with your audience. So there is a place for hybrid and digital but we have to recognize that in-person activities have a value that's really hard to replicate elsewhere. That's that's true. When I think back in 2019, when I did my last, when I organized my last conference, um, I mean, the the content part, um, putting five speakers on stage, I always felt uh, it's such a pity that it, there is no easy way back in 2019 to put the expertise online because uh, when they are on stage it's 30 minutes and they share a lot of uh, expertise and insight in an industry and 
only for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 people. It depends on the size of the audience in the room. And when the 13 minutes are over, the information is gone. And I think this is uh, something that definitely can be put online or digitalized to put the speaker in a virtual conference room, record them, and do that constantly all over the year and preserve their insights in the industry, which is also very interesting to see after a few years how the speakers evolved and how their companies evolved and what stories they told and how they turned out to be in reality. And they also agree that... Uh, the networking part especially uh, cannot be replicated uh, in the digital world. So it would be conferences, in my opinion, uh, more entertainment, more bringing people together. For example, if the speakers Q&A sessions uh, meets the speaker, uh, talk with them directly, one-on-one, -on -one, this might be beneficial. So we will see, hopefully uh, we will have these hybrid versions and not have too many conferences that stick to the digital version of that uh, it's an important part of the real life so still uh, keeping maintaining it um, for the networking purposes when we talk about culture let's switch a little bit the topic from uh, theory to cultural differences between Europe and the United States um, in Europe when people still today start startups uh, I think they have a very hard time um, from the circle of friends and families uh, to get motivation to do so because I mean, young people should not uh, start their own business and they should uh, stick to a traditional career path. How do Americans see the startup economy and startup ecosystem and startups in general in 2022? We, we do see these cultural differences. In Europe, it's less common. In Asia, one of the challenges they face is failure is just seen as very bad. You should not fail. And most startups fail. So the thought of I'm going to do a startup and potentially fail and bring some level of shame and embarrassment on myself, my family, really looked down upon. Whereas in the U.S., failure is not seen quite as negative. And really that startup culture, we idolize the, the startups. They were the new rock stars. The kids used to grow up and say, I want to be this famous sports athlete. Some still do, but they also say, I want to be Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. That's who they're looking up to now. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it comes from just the DNA of America. We are a country of risk takers. If you think back 200 years, there were a bunch of people, primarily in Europe back then. And some people said, let's just stay here. Let's stay in our town. And someone else said, you know what, I'm going to sell everything I own, leave everything I've ever known, the people, the countryside where my family's been for, for centuries. I'm going to get on a ship that hopefully won't sink and spend a number of weeks going to a place I've never seen before, leaving everything behind and do so believing I will have a better future. That is just an incredible risk. That is the biggest possible risk you can take, giving up everything you've known the safety, the comfort, and going into complete uncertainty with the belief that it will be better. And those are who Americans are. That was everyone who showed up to America 200 years ago. So we were inherently a country of risk takers. We were the people willing to get on that boat. And that has followed us as America has grown and come into our business mentality and now today's startup mentality. Yeah, just... Uh... That's an amazing picture. I mean, when you think of 1800, no internet, 
um, mostly people maybe read in a newspaper about the United States, about America, was completely different. Saw some pictures somewhere printed, but also printing was very difficult. Uh, photography was not invented. There were no wallets, no Bitcoin. So leaving Europe meant really selling everything. And I think also the banking system was not really, really evolved back then between Europe and, and North America. So it means everything they possessed, they had to carry with them. And meaning uh, going to America with little money and really starting from scratch. This is a, a very interesting picture. And out of that grew the culture in the United States. Exactly. It's just been a part of who we are. So mm -hmm. it's not surprising that startups and an acceptance of it and even celebration of it is natural given who we are. That makes a whole lot of sense. And we should uh, bring this spirit back to Europe and especially to, to Asia. I think it would make things a little bit easier for them. Um, I think because of that spirit and that culture in the United States, many startups in Europe um, start here and realize very quickly that if they want to grow and scale at one point in time, they need to leave also Europe, uh, not in a way that you uh, exemplified a couple of minutes ago. It's uh, more convenient today. Um, what's your recommendation to those startups? What should they be aware of when they enter the uh, startup ecosystem in the United States as Europeans? It means first having a clear reason why you're going to the U.S. Don't just say, I guess we should go. I guess it's a big market, but be very clear. OK, it's a big market. So is hitting the U.S. market relevant for getting more sales or could you get more sales just if you grew yourself in the European market or maybe the Asian market makes more sense? So understand what is it uniquely about going to the U.S. that will provide value. Maybe it's I know for a lot of European startups, create that U.S. presence because you want to get access to larger amounts of capital later on. That's perhaps easier in the U.S. There's more VCs. It's easier to access the capital and they're less likely to do so for a company in Europe. They want to see a U.S. company, whether it's in some cases, legally incorporated in the U.S. or just there's a strong presence. They know I can get on a plane and fly to New York, not have to fly to Hamburg. That's a, a big difference to, to many investors. What I've seen, I've seen a number of companies from Europe, as well as from Asia, Israel, other places come to the U.S. It really is helpful to have a guide. So let's think about if you're climbing Mount Everest, I can learn how to climb a mountain. There's standard techniques, but you get the Sherpas to go with you. You get the people who know the mountain, who understand why you do this path, not that one. You know how to say, I recognize those storm clouds. Now is the time to turn back because you don't know the local conditions as well as they do. They've been doing this over and over. When you go to really any foreign country, maybe not going from Germany to France, there's enough interaction. Uh, certainly we, we see in Europe, in, in the EU, borders have become more fluid. But when you're really going to a, a very different culture, Europe to Israel, Israel to the US, US to China, you really want to get that local guide who says, I understand 
how things work here. And that can be everything from here's how to set up a bank account and what you need and the paperwork and how to do it and why you want this type of bank over that type of bank, where to put your office. That might seem trivial in New York, for example, literally putting your office two miles from here to over there, you're going to literally attract a different labor pool. That might be two miles might be a little more unique to New York. If you're going to San Francisco, do you want to be in the city proper? Do you want to be down in the valley? Do you want to be in the East Bay? You might not understand the difference in terms of who you're going to have access to in terms of even the perception of being here versus there, what signal that sends. When you engage with others, when you build relationships, when you negotiate, really helpful to have a local person. And just to pull out, I'm, I'm gonna pick like a very stereotyped example. If you're negotiating in Israel, it's okay to shout at the person across from you. In fact, if you're not shouting, you're probably not negotiating. If you go to Japan and you start mm -hmm. shouting, you're just gonna kill the deal. Most people probably know enough to say, don't scream and shout when you're negotiating in Asia. But there are those subtle things to understand. What do you do? Do you address the senior person in the room, even if the junior person was the one who asked the question? Looking at the wrong person when you respond can send the wrong signal. And that's the type of thing that you only get when you have someone who is local to that community. So I always recommend when going to a foreign country, you want dual heads. Maybe one is technically more senior, but they really have to see it as a partnership. One from the mothership, one from the company, and then one who is local and together they can figure out the path forward. I think the in the beginning, you mentioned the key point to me, to all, uh, amongst all the other important points, but you said providing value. Can we go a little bit deeper into that. I think it's really key when someone wants to start a company abroad. It doesn't matter if it's the United States or if it's China. Uh, I also believe it's the most important thing to have clarity about what value the company wants to bring to the community over there and not just going there and say, yeah, you have more money, give me your money. And then they can go back immediately, send a check. Uh, what do you understand in providing value in the United States? Can you give some examples? We're very focused on product market fit and on value delivery to the customer. We see in other places, some people have, and even some people in the US say, I've got a cool technology. Like I remember some guys who used to work for me met with me and said, oh, we were developing this thing. We have this great technology and it's a new way to look at lots of video content. And they showed me what they were working on. I had this interface, kind of cool. And it was a slick interface. I said to him, okay, but what's the problem that solves? They couldn't answer that question. And for someone to do something, you have to have a justification. I have my life here right now. Why would I change? Well, at some point I'm going to say, I'm hungry. I don't have food in my apartment. I'm going to go out and buy food. That's my motivation. I need food. There might be something back when we had TVs where you had to get up and change it by hand. Someone said, I invented the remote control. I'm going to save you from having to get up off your couch. And Americans, we don't like to get up off our couch. So I said, oh, remote control. I like that. That's solving a need. I didn't even know I had the need until they brought up, or I didn't know this was solvable, but you are solving a need. So when you show up, you always want to say, 
here are the people, here is their need, and here is how we will solve that need and presumably do so at a way that it's cost-effective that they want to use your solution. And that's how you need to show up. And if you're coming to America, make sure it is Americans who have that need as opposed to going to Africa because Africans have that need. Now, maybe in fact, you say everyone has this need. Sometimes say, oh, here's a product, everyone can use it. But who really has that need in the most pressing way today and can pay for it? That's probably always who you want to target next. This, this makes sense. This makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, thinking first about the product or the solution and then thinking about, is there really a need in the United States for that? Or uh, is there no need? And if the answer is yes, then probably also thinking about uh, how the solution can be rolled out then first in the United States, especially when uh, it means US investors should invest in the rollout of the product. I think it's more compelling also to say, uh, this is the value that it brings to your community rather than say, okay, you can invest in Europe or in Africa. Um, that's not very unique. When I look at pitches from, from US companies, I'm always impressed that uh, in the beginning of their speech or their pitch or their presentation, they have this big vision. And they tell very clearly how they want to change the world in the long term. And when I look at Europeans, I very often miss this part, this big vision. How important is it in, a, in the United States for startups uh, to have a big vision for their company and for how they want to change society? It depends. That's certainly, again, we tend to celebrate those companies because it's sexier to hear about, we're going to create a social media platform where we democratize access to content or we give everyone a microphone. Wow, that's big. That's sexy. That's more exciting than we have this tool that's going to save every accountant two hours per week. That's not sexy. No one says, wow, that's going to revolutionize the world. But if you have a tool that saves every accountant two hours a week, you just do the math and say that is billions of dollars in value. Mm. It's just not really sexy. No one outside accounting wakes up and says, yeah, I want to get behind that. And even in the U.S., we tend to see different areas, different communities. The West Coast, for example, is known a little more for these really big change the world. I'm going to do something Everyone's going to want to do it and eventually we'll figure out how to monetize it. In New York, it's a little more, hey, with our tool, we can make your ad targeting 3% more effective. We can save accountants some time. It's a little more, here's the practicality. But whether it is that big change the world or just here's how I am going to generate more value or save money or help all those accountants, you start out with that vision might not be quite so grand. We start, here is the goal. Here is what we are trying to achieve. And now here's how we're going to do it, why we can do it, why we're the right team, the execution plan, why the technology works. But we do often start with that vision statement. I think this is an important part and it, uh, this leads back to your recommendation to find a local guide. I think this subtle differences between different communities or different areas in the United States. From Europe, it looks like this is America and uh, everything is the same, but inside it's probably very different. And uh, there are unique communities and we as Europeans would not understand this subtleness in the communication and how to address the right people with the right story. So it really makes sense 
to find guides? What's the best way for, for people when they want to make landfall in, in America uh, to find such guides? What's your recommendation? Go through your network. <laughs> See if you know other companies have gone out and have people who have done it or find someone like myself who has been there and gone through this process with companies, someone who's done it before. That's that's a good advice. So it's not basically uh, jumping on an airplane, uh, stepping out of the airplane and asking the first person on the street, uh, can you be my guide in, in, in the United States? So it should be really somebody who has done something similar And uh, those people can be found at universities, uh, also at conferences, and then get started with that. You mentioned that people can also reach out to you. Can you give us a little bit more information about your professional background besides writing books? I am a startup CTO. So for the past 20 plus years, I have been building tech startup companies across a number of disciplines. I've done cybersecurity, labor marketplaces, media, ad tech and lead generation, even helped develop some new languages, different enterprise software, some big data. So a variety of different areas, different technologies, different spaces. I've been a startup CTO, so I've come in at sometimes early stage companies. I've been companies from three to 300,000 people. So the classic startup from we're trying to get traction to scaling up to being mature to even through acquisition, gone through a few exits. I've also helped Fortune 500s, some very big corporations who wanted to play startup, who said, we have this idea, so we're going to ideate a business unit. And then later, those business units have spun out into multi-billion dollar companies. I've also helped some academic startups. I helped create teaching programs at MIT and at HBS. So I've seen how to do this. I've opened up offices, not only in the US, internationally as well, and worked with a number of international teams. So I've been around the block a number of times. How do you take this technology, this product, and get it into the hands of end users and really grow and expand the business? Mark, let me ask you one final question. Um, What's the best way to reach out to you? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There, of course, you can learn more about the book and where to buy it. You can download the free app. You can see more of my writing. You can hear me on other podcasts. You can contact me on the contact page. Follow me on social media. There's also a resources page where I've got a number of free downloads. How, for example, you can train up your whole organization on these skills. Completely free to download. I link to other free online resources. So all of this is available at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Mark, thank you very much for your time and giving insights into your book and also in the US business culture. And uh, if anybody in the audience is interested in making landfall in America, I think it's the best way to reach out to Mark and uh, ask him to help for the first step. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to chat with anyone who has a question. Have a great day. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.